From Korea, I'm Amira Jiwa. And I'm Duncan Griffiths Nakanishi. And welcome to Korea's Workshop Podcast. Every two weeks, Workshop breaks down one essential business topic and explains how it could be useful for you. Our goal is to get you just the right amount of info to help you apply what we're talking about to what you're working on. I'll be speaking to experts with practical tips and founders with relevant experience. And I'll be explaining essential terms and summarizing the key takeaways at the end of the show. Today, we're talking about how to assess a market to make sure there's an opportunity for you to capitalize on, and then how to develop a brand positioning that cuts through any noise and helps you stand out. We talk to founders of companies in two different sectors, activewear and beverages. Both of them emphasize that a crowded category isn't necessarily something to be afraid of when launching a new product. I personally don't think that a lot of other businesses starting in one sector means that, you know, you can't go there. Generally speaking, if you see new entrants in a new part of a category, those people probably are onto something. First up, here's Meg He, co-founder and co-CEO of A-Day, a direct-to-consumer women's wear brand that makes versatile pieces. Meg and her co-founder used their collective experiences in fashion, VC, and retail to enter a market that they saw as having a lot of potential while solving a real problem. I went to Stanford for my MBA and we do this thing there, which is called design thinking. And a lot of it is really just about having a really flexible approach and having a problem that you want to solve. So our initial problem was really just about how can we create something that simplifies women's lives? And that's as broad as it was. When we went to the initial surveys, it wasn't really about apparel and it wasn't really about activewear. It was just about like, where are the sticky points in your day? And then going from there and then narrowing down from there. We spent a lot of time talking to customers one-on-one and really understanding like what their user profile was and really building out, you know, that customer, like who she is, what's important to her, what are the problems that, you know, appear in her every day. So then what led you to, to apparel and activewear specifically? I think Nina and I are like very passionate about women and simplifying things for women. But also, you know, Nina was a former competitive gymnast at the national level in Germany. And I had done my yoga teacher training. So we knew like a decent amount about functional fabrics. I had also been an eBay power seller, like, you know, when I was a teenager. And I'd sold a lot of like clothing on eBay before. I had also worked at Poshmark. So I think a lot of our career had really intersected at this point between like e-commerce and fashion and technology. And so I think it was not surprising to anyone that the solution that we ended up with had something to do with like fashion and technology and e-commerce. Obviously, you both had, you know, relevant experience in the sector, but did you look for any specific market data or trends to make sure that the problem you were solving had business potential? You know, with all of that in mind, it was important for us to start a company in a high-growing, you know, sector and a market. A company had a lot of potential to kind of grow into a new, new demographic. I do think that, and I would recommend that people look into comps in the past, whether those are fundraising comps um, or exits. Definition time. Comps is short for comparables, which means making some form of comparison, often financial, with other companies in the same sector. Even if you don't do that work, your VCs will do that work at the next stage. So you should just save them a bit of time and not get rejected at that next stage because they can't find any like worthy comps. And I think you can be very loose about that. They don't have to be exactly in your sector. But I think also seeing those comps on a piece of paper and seeing, wow, actually all those companies made you know, so much money and that means that you know, we could do so well as well. It's actually like it feels um, like a really nice boost of confidence. But actually in this sector, you, know, you had the Lululemon IPO. There was a company called Lucy, which had exited to VF Corp for, I think, 
200 or 300 million. There's a company called Prano who had exited to Colombia for about 120 million. And all of those had actually happened in the last like 12 to kind of 36 months. So that was, you know, it looked like really promising sector. And was all the activity that, you know, you were seeing in the sector a concern? Were you worried about how to build something that could stand out? I feel like businesses always start in little batches. So, you know, if someone's really interested in like food delivery, then there's usually like five other companies who are also going off that same sector. I actually think this is a good thing because um, often your customers will be hearing this, you know, similar conversations. You're not going to be the first person to come to them with that proposition. You just need a better and different proposition. And the same with venture capitalists. But it does mean that, you know, you have to have a hard head and the determination to be able to kind of win through it. But I definitely would look at other companies to see whether they are getting funding, how is their traction go, what are the pitfalls, what do you think the downsides of their business model is and how are you going to resolve this differently? Here's Marissa Zupan, CEO of United Sodas of America, a line of healthier sodas that come in 12 flavors and bold mineral packaging. Marissa used her years of experience in the beverage sector to develop a new product that caters to what she identified as an unmet need. Before you would have a few core, you know, orange juice and sparkling water and some soda, then the shelf expanded into coconut waters and aloe waters and you name it, right? And it kept going and going and going. Yes, the space was crowded, but it also meant that everyone was trying to solve a really important problem. Okay, so once you knew you know, what problem you were solving, how did you decide what the right solution could be? We realized that most of the new innovation that was happening in the market around ready-to-drinks and anything carbonated or functional was always adjacent to soda. It was always a solution to soda and all called something different. Sparkling tonic, sparkling water, kombucha, whatever. They're slightly out. Kombucha is slightly in the more functional space, so out of our category. But we found that customers are really gravitating towards these alternatives while the word soda was more and more something that people were running away from. So we looked at that and we said, oh, what if we could create an alternative but an alternative that went straight for the heart of soda. So that was a first differentiating factor for our project. When we first start talking to people about soda these days, the first word that they always say is bad for you. That's the first thing. Really bad for you, sugar is way too high, responsible for you know obesity in this country and all around the world. I haven't had a soda in years and years and years and years. Fine, you know, you have a conversation, you move on, you talk about other, you know, beverage habits, things like this. And then by the end of the conversation, you know, there's these stories that pop up like, well, I actually have to say that one time when I was driving cross country with my dad, I had to have a Coca-Cola, so we went to a diner and we sat down and had a Coke and it was the most incredible experience. Or whenever I go to a movie theater, I have to say like it's not a good movie theater experience unless I have a Dr. Pepper in my hand, you know? So there's like uh, these these little cues that we picked up on that said, actually, the, even though we're not hearing from them, please make a new soda. We did find some really interesting opportunities when you took the needs and then the sort of nostalgia or the emotional needs needs and found that there was some opportunity between those two. Who did you decide was the you know audience that you were going to target? First, identify a target that was going to speak most to and perhaps a target that was going to be influential of other people, right? So we kind of found a sweet spot, which was sort of the older end of Gen Z and all the way up through millennials. So these are people that have a lot of cultural power. They're right now shaping a lot of what people see and care about and hear in movies and culture, etc. 
And then what we did is we sized that market and then we understood their impact on other generations, other categories. So they have both impact on the older generations. They tend to influence the decision, the buying behaviors of their parents, things like this. And then they also have to happen to have impact on younger generations. So the younger sisters, younger brothers of Gen Z, you know, they definitely have impact on those generations. So you mentioned, you know, that you size that core target market and then there's other secondary audiences as well. How did you find, you know, the data that you needed to do that? Demographic is much more easy to find online, Googling and and buying reports, one-off reports, things like that. Psychographic specificity is much more difficult, much more expensive. Hey, me again. Whereas demographics looks at who the customer is, psychographics looks at why they buy taking into account their buying habits, attitudes, values, and opinions. There are tools that exist that allow you to size markets. And if you know someone who has access to those tools, I strongly recommend that you uh, tap those people. We did have access to psychographic specificity merely because of my background and, and the tools that I had access to. But if you don't have that, you can find ways to piece it together and you can find ways to connect with people who have experience right in those markets so if you're trying to develop a new pasta sauce right like it might be worth just having conversations with people who are steeped in that if you're not they'll be able to tell you that information off the top of their heads because they live it every day it is really about resources if you don't have the resources to get that detailed information you can get scrappy about it and i don't think it means that you are locked out of the opportunity to develop a product that's really special Finally, how do you how do you balance all of that data with, you know, the intuition needed to build a really strong positioning? Positioning the product in a really rational way using data analysis and sort of proving the viability or the potential of a product is one part of brand positioning. The other part of brand positioning is what I consider the more intuitive, potentially, quote unquote, irrational side of building a brand, right? There's sort of these ineffable qualities that brands need to inhabit and they need to bring to light that are beyond words, that are beyond numbers. And those two things need to be developed in conjunction, not separately, right? There's not a clear baton handoff, I don't think, anymore. I think you need to bake the cake together. You know, when you're baking a cake, you don't put like half of the ingredients in the oven and then pour the eggs and the sugar on top of those, right? You, they all need to come together. They all need to bake together. So to have creative voices helping you develop a brand proposition earlier on than you think is wildly important for you to be able to understand truly what your brand positioning is, I think. So Meg and Marissa have made clear that the problems we're solving are likely to be in fairly crowded markets. But how do you build a positioning and a brand proposition that will reach the right people and capture some of that market share? We spoke to Jonah Fehowitz, who leads strategy at Red Antler. That's the brand company behind some compelling positionings for brands like Casper and Allbirds. Here's his perspective on the importance of a unique positioning in markets with multiple players and how to develop one with mass appeal. We need to be developing positionings that are solving a real problem and that are based in a human truth. Now, another business might have already identified what that problem might be and With that, it is really essential that you are looking out into the category, studying the competition, and understanding what other people are doing, what they're saying, how they're expressing what they believe and what they stand for. 
There are tons of examples, though, of businesses that offer pretty much the exact same thing, but because of their positioning, they are both able to exist. So I think the best example of that is in ride sharing with Uber and Lyft, right? They pretty much offer the exact same thing. Today, they have evolved, but if you really look back to when they were founded, Uber positioned themselves as everyone's personal driver, right? It was elevated, it was chic, it was sophisticated. While as Lyft positioned themselves as your friend picking you up, it was safe, it was friendly, it was fun. And so if they had both come out with the same positioning, they both would not have existed. So positioning also allows there to be multiple players in the market and ensure there is not any one player that is sort of taking too much share. So what do you need to think about to get to that kind of positioning? The best positionings go beyond a functional description of what the business does and speaks much more to an emotional benefit of what that product or service is going to allow somebody to do, allow them to be, allow them to feel. And what goes into a positioning is an understanding and a description of your target, the insight, the human truth that you're solving for, the product offering itself, what you functionally give people, And then the last sort of piece of a brand positioning, which is the most important piece, is the emotional differentiating benefit. How do you go about, you know, figuring out what that big idea might be? What we like to do is really ensure that we are developing a positioning that's not just a description of the product that feels unique for the category and ultimately will be a positioning that reaches the largest group of people as possible. There's a difference between demographics and psychographics, right? Demographics are not the tool for developing a successful brand positioning. Demographics can be great when you get into the execution moment, when you're thinking about buying media or thinking about a very specific targeted ad. But when you're developing a positioning, you want to think more about the psychographic. You want to think about the mindset and you want to think about the beliefs and the behaviors around a group of people. So I think the best way to dive deep in psychographics is by talking to people through qualitative research and insights. So that's everything from one-on-one conversations to focus groups. What you want to begin is with the hypothesis of sort of a group of people. And I think it's important, you know, to ensure you're talking to a range of people that's not just any one age or any one gender or location, but rather a more representative group of folks. Through that, you want to begin to sort of ask them questions about their life and what they believe and how they think about a certain category or what their routines might be around a certain category what the best parts of you know, a certain category might be or what they might have challenges around. What's an example of a brand that did just that, you know, using psychographics to reach a larger audience? One of my favorite brand positionings is that of Airbnb. They position themselves all around this idea of belonging anywhere. And so they thought less about demographic and more about a psychographic someone who thinks about traveling versus vacationing. And they entered a very, very crowded market where it wasn't just about vacation rentals, they were entering the hospitality market. And they were able to steal share away from hotels and completely change the way that people think about traveling. I think if they had gone after just people who wanna stay in people's houses, or just people who kind of like that more sort of nomadic lifestyle, 
they wouldn't have been able to capture the brand share that they were able to capture. Thanks to Meg, Marissa, and Jonah for their valuable insights. They all mentioned the importance of talking to customers and user research. That's a topic we'll be covering here on Workshop soon. For now, here's Duncan with key takeaways on assessing a market's potential and building a positioning that could capture some of that market share. Number one, when you're starting a business or launching into a new category, you need to make sure you're solving a real problem or addressing an actual unmet need. Number two, take a look at wider market trends to see if there is an opportunity. And remember not to be put off by lots of activity in the category. Number three, if you are entering a crowded category, your brand positioning is what will help you stand out and attract customers. And number four, think in terms of psychographics, not just demographics, when you're thinking about the people who'll be interested in your product. For a more detailed look at some of the things to consider when assessing a market and thinking about the role that you might play in it, check out our online guide to the topic at mailchimp.com workshop. And that wraps up today's show. If you have any ideas or feedback for us, get in touch at workshop at couriermedia.co. And we'll be back with another edition of Workshop in two weeks. See you then.